Welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspirations to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is Marie Conway, who is a strategic foresight practitioner and researcher based in Melbourne, Australia. Marie worked as a tertiary education leader for many years in policy, planning and strategy roles. Marie studied foresight at Swinburne University in Melbourne, and in 2007, she established Thinking Futures and has operated as a consultant since then. She works with people to support them having collaborated and curated conversations about possible futures to inform their strategic decision-making. Marie has published extensively on the use of foresight in practice. In 2016, she published her first book called Foresight Infused Strategy, a how-to guide for using foresight in practice. Marie is currently completing her PhD studies. Welcome to FuturePod, Marie. Thank you, Peter. So, Marie, thanks for coming. Our first question that we'd like to ask our guests is for you to tell your story of how you got into the futures and foresight field. I remember this very clearly. I um, was called into the Vice-Chancellor's office at Swinburne to talk about my job. And he said, we're restructuring and you don't have a job. I thought, I think I'm okay. He said, but we want you to lead the planning department. And I went, oh, that's fine. And then he said, and we'd like you to do foresight. And I didn't know what foresight was. I knew what the word meant. But in terms of strategy, I had no idea. So I went back to my office and Googled it and thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. Thinking that it would be just another um, step in the strategy process, whatever. But it turned out to be something that changed my career and changed my life, really. So I um, started to use Foresight at Swinburne with Joe Voros, and we did that for about five years when a new Vice-Chancellor arrived who wasn't interested at all in Foresight. So I left Swinburne to go somewhere else to another university where they were. They didn't know what Foresight was, they told me, but they said it, it sounded interesting. So I worked there for a few years, and then I decided really what I wanted to do was to use Foresight, to work with people, to use Foresight, to help them think differently about the future. So that's when I set up my business. It's been evolving and changing and shifting, and it still is, depending on what's happening at the time and what I'm learning and how I'm developing as well as a practitioner. Yeah, at the time, I think, when you were asked to head up the Foresight and Planning Unit, I think Richard came to Swinburne to establish the Foresight uh, Institute. Yes, yeah. And when I was setting setting up the foresight function, I kept looking for people who knew what foresight was and who had used it in practice. I can't remember now who it was I was speaking to, but they said, but Richard Slaughter's coming to Swinburne. And I, I was so happy. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, there'll be somebody at Swinburne who knows what foresight is and I don't have to explain it and I don't have to try and convince people. And yeah, it was great. So that's when I, I, I met Richard and we he helped me advise me when I needed I needed help and then I started to do the course 
thought I'd only do the first subject, but kept going <laughs> because once I was in the first subject, I thought, oh my God, this is so good. I just have to finish the course. And also you, um, you have had a very long association with the Association of Professional Futurists. Mm -hmm. How were they part of the journey too for you getting into the field? I, um, I've always been a fan of professional associations because they help you meet people in the field when you're new to the field and you build your profile and you get professional development. So I applied to be a member, was accepted. Then I um, offered to, I asked how I could be involved because I think that's the other way you, you learn about the field is to be involved with people who are working in the field. But I ended up being co-chair for a little while, but then uh, withdrew from that and became the membership administrator. So I did that for a long time. And that was really useful. I mean, it's an ordinary job in some respects for a professional association, an essential job. And it puts you in contact with the members and you find out what people are doing. You meet a lot of people. It's yeah, it was great. And I think that association has changed so much in the last 10 to 15 years. Well, it's only about what's well, only 12 years old or 15 years old but in that time it's gone from being kind of a small group of people in the US to now a global organization full of people who for the most part are very happy to share their information and if you have a question or an issue or a problem they're very generous in helping you and helping people you know from a student through to through the wise, the wise elders of the tribe, yeah. So I, you know, it's a professional association involvement is what you put into it. You get out of it what you put into it. So it's been very useful. Who are the people who have supported you? You know, through the journey. Well, you have <laughs> at varying points in time in different sorts of roles. Most recently, as my PhD supervisor always kind of making me think a little more. Joe has always been there, Joe Voris. And I still enjoy telling people that I was his boss. That's always good fun. I think Cindy Fruin has always been a great support just in terms of having a, you know, a shoulder to cry on or some or a, or a brain to pick at different times. Everyone you meet when you go to a gathering or you go to some sort of futures function is willing to have a conversation with you. Um, and to answer questions or to just just listen, but they're the ones that spring to mind. I can yeah, there's names going around in my head, but you know that's enough. I could go on for a long time. So Marie, is there a tool that is a favourite for you for helping people explore possible futures? The two tools I use the most are scenario development and um, environmental scanning or horizon scanning as it's called in some countries. But scanning I guess is the one that I consider to be the core of futures work because if you ha don't have good information about change, whatever you do after that will be less than it could be. Early on in my practice I decided that um, I would run webinars and so I did a series of webinars on uh, on scanning, among other things, and I wrote a guide to do scanning. So I got quite 
into scanning <laughs> because it, it is the first step. It's the first step in gathering the information about change that you need to understand what change matters for your organisation and then how that change might evolve over time. And that second part is one of the things that people often miss. There's a lot of uh, publications out there today about change today and what it's like and most of them are pretty good but they sprinkle the future the term the future through their reports but they don't actually explore how change evolves over time so with the way I do scanning and the way I train people to do scanning is to start with identifying it depends on the context sometimes you start with an issue a strategic issue or a strategic decision that you want to make or that your organization needs to make and you use that as what I call the anchor for your scanning because when you do your scanning on the internet and, and that's that's where 99% of scanning will happen now um, there's so much information out there that you can get overwhelmed and when people first start doing scanning the overwhelmed feeling is normal and usual because it's well there's all this information about my issue how do I filter it and part of becoming a good scanner is developing those filters personally in your brain so that you will be able to understand what matters for you and the issue that you're interested in, what you need to put aside for now, what might be interesting in the future. And I always say you should never dismiss anything that you're scanning around and you find something and you think, well, that's not interesting. That's a bit silly. That's rubbish. And I always say, well, no, stop. When that happens, you have to stop and say, well, why do I think that? And what can I find that would support me? And what, would I, what, what can I find that would prove me wrong? So then you go off and scan around that. So scanning, I always tell people, to, people will say, I don't have time to scan. It's the thing I hear the most. And so I say, 15 minutes. You know, if you can't do 15 minutes a day, do 15 minutes a week. <laughs> and I said, block it out in your diary and make it non-negotiable. You know, tell people at work that that's my scanning time and don't put anything else in there. People kind of look at me as though I'm a bit crazy. And they say, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I do about an hour every morning, reading stuff, scanning. I have I use Feedly, which is a news, news um, aggregator. Um, and I run through that. The more you do scanning, the quicker that process becomes. And I run through that every morning. And I save things I need to save. I share them on social media. If I think it's it's um, information that would be useful in my work, then I put them in a, another folder somewhere else. Otherwise, I just leave them in Feedly tagged so I can always go back and find them. I also put them, the ones um, that I decide are important, the ones I share on social media usually, I put on a, um, a site called Shaping Tomorrow, which is a really good site as a database. It's all there. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You just click a button and it does it for you. They're using artificial intelligence now as well. So you can put in your sources, the sources that you found that are useful, and they will do the scanning for you. So there's lots of ways to get the raw material, which is good because that used to be the time consuming part. But once you've got the raw material, then you have to work out what to do with it. So there's, you have to categorize it. You have to be able to retrieve it somehow. So I tag things, but other people will use steep categories, social, technological, economic, environmental, and political, um, or variations thereof, because there are many variations. 
they'll use those categories as a top level category. It doesn't really matter as long as you've got them categorized, you've got them stored somewhere and they're accessible to you and to other people in the organization as well. Because there's no point keeping scanning information secret. If you're doing this work across the organization, then you have to have um, open access to the information. It's one of the things uh, with strategy in the old days <laughs> is that all the information about change was kept in the executive suite and people in the organization didn't know anything about it. So they were just given the future and told to go forth and make it happen. Whereas if you give people all the information about change, then everyone's got the same uh, baseline of knowledge. They'll know why, why decisions are being made. And they're involved in that strategic thinking process, which is really what foresight is all about, trying to democratise strategic thinking. The way that what I do anyway is about democratising strategic thinking in organisations. So then you, when you've categorised it, you can do lots of things with it. You know, there's lots of different ways to, to, to sort data. And it depends on what you want to do with the information that you found. I was in, I was in a session with you, I think, an executive education session. I remember, I remember somebody said, you know, we've done all this scanning. We've got heaps of information. What do we do now? <laughs> and I, I don't know. You know, it's like, well, what, what were you planning to do with it before you started to do it? Well, we just did the scanning. We don't know what to do with it now. And that's a common problem as well. You have to know what you're going to do with it, where you're going to use it in your existing strategy process before you start. You can write reports, you can send out emails, you can have workshop. There's a whole range of ways you can actually use the information that you found, but use it regularly. So don't keep it secret and get it out there and communicate often about it. A question for you, one thing that I've both been a scanner and I've run scanning teams. Mm -hmm. um, what's your view of individual scanning and then groups or teams of people scanning? I think you have to do it individually first because you get a diversity of perspective then. Not everybody will find the same thing about the same topic. Everybody will have a, you know, for example, if everybody's got a particular strategic issue and they're trying to find out what's important, then somebody will find a technological hit because that's what they're interested in. Somebody will find a social one. It's So I think it's really important sort of at the foundation of a scanning team is that people scan individually all the time. They put it into Shaping Tomorrow or a database, common database, and then people as the team come together to look at what people have found and then they decide what to do with it as a group. But I think scanning ultimately is an individual activity or in Shaping Tomorrow's case, as they're very proud to say, you know, it's an artificial intelligence-informed activity now. So, you know, they've got a robot that does their scanning for them. So I still think... I think that's probably fine to a certain degree, but there's a human element in understanding what really matters for your issues and where the gaps are, that kind of thing. I think there's human interpretation of data that's always important. So, Marie, what are you seeing happening and now? How are you sense-making what's going on? And what, what emerging futures interest you now? I always say I hate this question <laughs> because it's my view of the world. 
everyone has their own view of the world. What is of most interest at the moment, apart from my PhD, which is top of mind now, trying to write it, is, um, is artificial intelligence and what's going to happen with that. Because that has the potential to, to change a lot of things. Not just technology, but how we live and work and play and communicate and any. I mean, I don't really understand the technology itself. I know that we are at the stage of artificial intelligence narrow. So, you know, that's our iPhones can do one thing really well. It's Uber, call a taxi, get some food. And then the next stage is where it's it's a smart it develops to be as smart as a human brain, which is pretty scary, a single human brain. But that's, I mean, I think Ray Kurzweil thinks that's going to happen in twenty twenty five, perhaps. But then the the kind of super intelligence that that all the movies are about. I uh, was reading something recently that said we just don't have the knowledge for that to happen in the time frame that a lot of people so are talking Sky about. So Skynet's not going to happen in, by 2025? Well, I kind of hope not. <laughs> so I think, you know, the, the, the full impact of artificial intelligence will probably be beyond my lifetime. But I can... It, well, I started watching it and seeing it five, six years ago. I went to a conference in Singapore a few years ago and um, it was global higher education leaders... And one person in a concurrent session mentioned the term artificial intelligence, but nobody else did. And I'm thinking, that's really interesting when you work in the futures field, because that, that was an example for me of how I was seeing something and thinking that it was quite important for education, and nobody in the room was, was even talking about it. It's kind of interesting. So they had an online question and answer session. I kept asking questions about artificial intelligence, and they never got asked. And I kept going, whoa, <laughs> what's happening here with universities? You know, do they not get what's going to happen with artificial intelligence? I went to another conference in Australia a couple of years later and they were talking about it, but they still didn't understand. They still didn't talk like they understood what the, the potential impact of it. Like they didn't really understand that. It was like, well, how do we use it now in, the, in its current form? So that's that. I just I think that's one of those mega trends, you know, as horrible a term as that is, that um, that could could change change the world. It's interesting because I'm like you. I pay a lot of attention to what's being said about artificial intelligence, and what strikes me, Marie, is the amount of people. You know, what I think of as intelligent people are very scared of this. And the yes. fact that they are scared yeah. about yeah. something that hasn't happened tells me that there's a that there's a deep fear associated with this. Yeah. And I'd I'd like to hear your views on that. It's um it's interesting. It's always a two sided coin, isn't it? There's always hope and fear. The fear comes from lack of control, I think. This um, technology has the has the potential to run away. I mean, if if everything that people write about it comes true, then you know, self learning, self replicating, it could be very scary in terms of the human race. Which is why it's really important, and that's and that's been recognised that now at this stage, that 
we make sure that the human element is maintained in, in that process of development for artificial intelligence. So people have to remain at the core of, um, of how it develops. I think the fear thing comes because it's, it's, people see it as having the potential to upend their life, you know, to change their life completely, which it will, I think. You know, when, when we have the superintelligence, I'm glad I won't be around when that happens, I think. And I think the more work you do on futures and you learn to think differently about the future, the less fear you have. Because, you know, artificial intelligence is but one thing. And I always say that to people who are scanning. You can't project a future from a single trend. And a trend is about the present, not the future. So you have to explore how that might happen, evolve over time, but you need to look at the system of trends. So artificial intelligence is one thing, but you know there's social trends going on, doing all sorts of strange things. The pol- geopolitical scene is very strange at the moment compared to the past. So how will that develop? You need you can't say well artific- well you can say that artificial intelligence will change the world, but it will change the world in different ways depending on what else happens around it. I was going to ask you to, because I think artificial intelligence is a good example of what I call biofurcated thinking. In other words, mm-hmm. people tend to mm-hmm. see it in black and white, mm-hmm. even though it is anything but black mm-hmm. and white. Yeah. Have you got sort of some advice or how p- people listening can understand that? How do you listen and make sense of an issue that people are seeing as either or? Oh, that's a good question. I think that... It's part of this ability to, not sure of the right words, but to be open to the future. So, and to understand that the worldview or or the sense-making tools that we use now are fine for now, um, but that we must always adapt them and change them. And I think people don't like to do that. You know, this is my worldview. This is how I see the world. And um, and you can't make me change it. So the fear comes from, from that because it's threatening their worldview, threatening their sense-making of reality as they see it. I don't think you can say... It, it's a bit like climate change in some ways. You can't tell people that they need to change their thinking. They have to work it out for themselves. And so it's that's where foresight processes and things like that Strategic thinking processes are quite useful in kind of stretching people's thinking so that they can recognise that there are alternative ways to view the future out there and that some of them are good. And there will be there will be negative futures, but if you, if you don't like that future, we always say that, if you don't like that future, then you need to act today to mitigate its impact. Um, you can't just let it happen. When people say now, well, that was a surprise, we didn't see that coming, and I say, well, you weren't looking. <laughs> and and so I think when people think of, think of things in black and white, then it's it's safe. It's and it's it's people's yeah. I think that's normal. You know, people like to be safe. So, Marie, what do you say to the responsibility of futures practitioners to actually be that we? While it might be normal to want to see things in black and white, that do we have to actually deliberately seek out the areas that even we're not comfortable to think about? 
Yes. <laughs> I think that's, um, that's one of the primary tasks of doing this kind of work is that you need to look for diversity of perspectives. And when you do that, not all of them will be your perspective. So finding the the one that you don't like or the opposite to you or the one that's different to you is really important and exploring what that means. I mean, I was thinking as I, as I was saying that, I thought it's like talking to my older sister. <laughs> I hope she never listens to this. You know, she and I, have, we have different perspectives on a whole lot of things. Since when we were growing up, we fought a lot. And we, as we grew up, we fought a lot. But since I've been doing this work, I'm able to just step back and listen to her. I still don't agree with her on a whole lot of things. But that ability to to take in new information or different information and just sit with it is part of what we do. Because I think we're not in the business of rejecting things, rejecting ideas about the future. It's... We need diversity of perspectives about the issues that are around today um, and how they're shaping the future. So Marie, how do you describe foresight and explain what it is you do to someone who doesn't really understand what foresight is or what a futurist does? There's uh, two, two different types of audiences for that question. Um, one is people who've come to me and said, I'm interested in foresight, I don't know what it is. And there's other people who you're trying to explain who have no idea what it is. The, fir- the first category is, mu- is a much easier <laughs> um, discussion to be had. Because you can explain that, you know, foresight's a cognitive capacity, it's innate, it helps us um, make sense of reality, we plan for the future, and if we surface it overtly through the use of foresight methods and tools, then it can become a collective capacity in an organisation. So it can build a culture of being futures-facing, futures and it can strengthen strategy development. I mean, that's kind of the spin. For people... For people who are interested or people who don't know anything about it and come across it, um, I think that's the audience I really wrote my book for. Because when I started my business, I made a commitment to myself to share, to share information about foresight, because I figured there was no point me talking about it all the time with a, a particular group of people at a particular time. But if we really wanted to get this foresight approach and this way of thinking out there into the into society then you had to share information about it in a different in a range of ways so i started to do the webinars i wrote reference guides i gave them all away for free and then a few years ago i thought you know i've got all this information i could write a book <laughs> and instead of people having to come and uh, you know, download this and download that one and listen to that and watch that webinar. I can put everything that I'd done since 2007 together in a book and the focus of it would be how do you do this in practice? And it would be for people who were just starting out, who who were interested, who knew a little bit maybe, 
you know, how do I actually use this in my work, in my, in my organization, in my strategy process? What do I need to know about? So the book was designed to give people a grounding in what foresight was, where it um, where you could fit it or slot it into the strategy development uh, process, and then you know my toolbox. I talked about my my foresight toolbox. Gave examples of other methods that you could use as well, and then some lessons from the field. So you know, don't do this. I did this, and I learned the hard way. Don't you do it? So I think that I've always said too that to know what foresight is, really, you know, in your head. You have to experience a process. And that lesson I learned very early on at Swinburne when we were doing a pilot exercise, a pilot scenarios exercise, and the senior managers weren't interested for a whole lot of reasons. And they came to the workshop at the end of the process and the people in the workshop reported back and they were less than impressed. And one of the senior DVCs made a negative comment and some one of the participants stood up and said well we don't expect you to understand how good this process was and the value that we've got out of this process because you weren't in it so that's okay and I thought wow you know I was a novice you know a greenhorn then and it was like wow this stuff really works <laughs> so I think that if someone you can explain some foresight to somebody but until they've actually been through a process I don't think they get it. Well, I didn't get it until I'd been through a process. It's what I call a foresight switch. Suddenly this switch in your brain gets turned on and you can't turn it off. Yeah. In terms of your your practice itself, I know your practice went through its own change. I'd like you to talk to the listeners around how your, pros, how your actual practice evolved. Uh, when I started in 2007... I read a lot of books. I like reading books. There's kind of a rule book when you're starting your own business as a consultant. You know, a bit of a formula there across all these sorts of books you can read. And so I thought, oh, yes, I can do that. I can do that. That's fine. Um, you know, did everything I had to do, set everything up that I thought I had to set up. Uh, it was all, you know, it was all very nice. It was exciting starting my own business. And then I accepted, I accepted work. You know, it's like, this is great. You know, all these people are coming to me for work, to give me work. So I said, oh, yes, 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 yes. So I was doing, people would ring up and say, can you help us write our strategic plan? And I would say, yes, of course I can, but you have to do this futures work first. Nobody said no. So I just kept kept doing that. And that was fine. And that, that initial work that I set up then is still with me now, but it's, it's in a much more developed state than it was then. But I would do speaking, I would facilitate planning workshops, whatever anybody wanted me to do, I would do. And it was a bit silly, really. I realised you know, after one particularly bad engagement, <laughs> I thought, this is a bit silly. You know, it's, it's, it's not right. It's not good for the client. It's not good for me. I have to rethink what I'm doing and how I do it. And so I moved away from kind of the traditional conventional consulting model um, don't call myself a consultant except when I write it on the departure cards <laughs> from Australia. So I, I thought, what is it that I'm good at? What is it that I can do best? And I started to focus around uh, working with people on projects rather than being the expert at the front of the room. 
which I, I hate. So I, work, I, I now look for projects where I can work with people over a period of time, build up a relationship and actually help them use foresight, not just talk about using it, but actually help them use it in, in their practice on a day-to-day -day basis. They're, they're very few and far between, but, but I know how to say no now. <laughs> and I stopped doing keynote speaking. I hate keynote. You know, it's not me. It, you know, it doesn't suit me. I'm not a good speaker, and that's okay. That's fine. There's lots of other really good speakers out there. But I do other things better. I am now at a position where I think I'm adding more value than I was in the earlier days by doing a narrower set of things. Yeah. Uh, to some extent, though, I'm hearing, Marie, that you almost had to try and do everything to have enough experience to understand what it was you really do well and you want to do more of. Yes, that's probably true. Yeah. I think it comes with getting older too, I think. <laughs> you kind of realise that you have, you know, there's, you can do things. It's a bit like busy work. You know, you do them because you can do them and somebody asks you to do it. But is it really, are you getting anything out of it? Am I getting anything out of it? And are they really getting a good experience as well? And and I think w where I was uncomfortable in that professional sense, it wasn't good for them and it wasn't good for me. But now the work I do, I'm much more comfortable. But you're right, I think, I think when you start out, yes, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but I think you're right. When you start out, you probably need to experiment and see and see where you fit. And I think Richard Slaughter talked about working out where you fit in the in the futures conversation. And that's yeah, and that's probably the process that you need to go through to be able to work that out. So Marie, tell us about your PhD. My t my PhD has been a, a journey. I started doing it in the late 90s at the University of Melbourne on one topic about the relationship between academics and administrators, which was a long-standing issue for me, having been a manager in universities for almost 28 years, to talk about two different worldviews. Although when I started in universities, there, there was one. So I eventually withdrew from that for a whole lot of reasons. And I started again at Swinburne in 2012 with the same topic. And similarly, similar to what we were just talking about in terms of finding your way in when you become a futures practitioner, that's what happened with my PhD as well. I started with one topic. It turned, it was that relationship between academics and administrators. It turned into the future of management, university management. Then it turned into the future of the university the future for the university, which is where I am now. But the one thread through the whole thing was about worldviews, was about how the worldview of an academic and the worldview of a manager now are, are conflicting. And at the moment, my topic, well, my topic is how contested ideas uh, of the university are enabling and constraining possible futures, the emergence of possible futures. I don't know the right word. I have decided <laughs> uh, that there's actually three contested ideas of the university now and uh, one of them is the traditional idea of the university which is the one we all know and love 
the the ivy you know the ivy ivory tower the 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 University of Melbourne type type university there's the managerial idea which is the university we have now bureaucratized managed measured controlled university emerging outside the university well the managerial idea came from outside the university but we and came into the university the traditional idea lives in the university from outside the university now we have what i'm calling the social idea which is in two parts <laughs> one is from within the university and it's it's a group across the world really it's starting to pop up everywhere where academics aren't going to play the neoliberal game anymore and they're saying this is where we are it's probably our fault that we didn't react soon enough but we don't have to stay here so different types of universities are being established they're still being called a university they're still being set up within a legal system but it's pulling away you know it's creating alternatives then the other side of this social idea is uh, is a group of people from outside the university who don't really care about the university like people who work in them care about them they see the university is too expensive it's a waste of money we don't need it anymore we can get knowledge however we want whenever we want wherever we want it you don't need to exist so that's a weak signal but it's sitting there and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger and for me that's like whoa now that's frightening because i care about the university i want the university to have a future but it might not so that's what i'm exploring in the phd and i'm i'm using the literature as my data and um, analyzing that using three horizons and causal late analysis and then doing some scenarios and then trying my aim is to develop a an integrally informed <laughs> framework for thinking about the future of the university to hopefully broaden and deepen the discourse that's going on at the moment about the university which is so dominated by this fight between the people who are resisting the neoliberal idea and the people who own the neoliberal idea who just assume it to be true right and proper and that the university will continue forever and I think that's one of the things that really surprised me at this conference in Singapore, but also in the research, in the literature, is that there is such a strong belief across all those ideas, except the one from outside the university where they don't care about the university, that the university will always be here. And following on from your earlier point around artificial intelligence, mm. I wonder what artificial intelligence does to, as you said, the three world views. Artificial intelligence is clearly a challenge to people who want the old university to be the old university. Yeah. Um, there might there might be a group of people might not that actually embrace artificial intelligence as a way to create the university that we need. Yeah. Well, there, there's already it's already here. There's already people who are using artificial intelligence. The Minerva project in San Francisco is based on that. But again, it's kind of it's narrow. It's not the you know the scary type. It's not the overwhelming type. Yeah, it's here. It's a weak signal. They've been around for a while though. And there's other there's lots of online systems, platforms now for 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 learning. I think the people outside 
who don't want the university or don't think the university is necessary won't, you know, will be quite happy with artificial intelligence because it will make their life easier in terms of getting access to what they need to know when they need to know it. The people who hold the traditional idea, at the core of that idea is the university's social and public role. So I don't know what artificial intelligence would do to that. That's interesting. I'll have to think about that for my PhD. But the um the managerial one, well, you know, it's it's kind of it's like it's in this little bubble of its own. You know, thinks it's wonderful. You know, government. It's it's just it's so dominant. And I was really surprised. And I think they're the group that aren't really treating it seriously, artificial intelligence seriously. They're the they're the group that you know, talk about it but don't really understand yet, haven't let their minds open up enough to let in the full potential impact of it. So it's it's still, I think, for education and universities, it's there, people are using it. You know, Newton is in a few universities, but it's still sort of hovering around the edges for most. Thank you, Marie, for being part of FuturePod. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with the FuturePod community. Thank you for the invitation. It's been great. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.